Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So on this episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Critchlow. Stephen is a serial social entrepreneur. He has created companies, he's sold companies. And today Stephen comes on to talk about his company Evergreen Life. He shares some lessons with us on how to scale our organizations. And we had a really good chat about sugar and seeking short-term pleasure over our long-term wellness and happiness. It is an excellent, excellent interview. We also talked about diversity and Stephen shares with us some business lessons, one of which is in hindsight, he wish he hadn't let tactics drive his strategy. So enjoy. And I'd love to know what you think about this podcast. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could leave us an iTunes rating and review. Enjoy. And I will see you in the next episode. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you, Tara? I'm, well, we just, I'll, be, I'll be honest, we've just had some tech issues. <laughs> so now I'm calm. It's working. It better be working. It's all good look, looking good at the moment. So it would be great if you could share with our listeners a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so so I'm the founder of Evergreen, which is a social impact group. And uh, I think today we're here to talk about Evergreen Life, one of the companies in that group. And what that does is a, an app for the country. And we have about just under a million users. And what they can do is everything from book an appointment with the GP, book the repeat prescriptions, but it goes all the way through to their wellness and helps them be as well as they can. What we're trying to do is help people both reduce the, the amount of time that they are ill and, and avoid those long-term diseases that we all get in the Western world, as well as collecting data for them at the point of care, should they become sick for their GP or for the hospital, and also use that data for more research on things that currently are quite difficult to, to look at in the areas of, particularly in the areas of wellbeing. So what led you to Evergreen? Yeah, so, so I was a hospital pharmacist in the NHS in my first career, if you like. 
and I rose to the dizzy heights of, of being on the tr on trust boards and looking at hospitals whilst I always remained clinically involved. And what I noticed was that there were a lot of people suffering or dying simply because information wasn't available at the point it was needed in, in, in the care process. I, I left my NHS job to write some software to, to fix that problem, particularly initially for, for my pharmacist colleagues. That then grew to be a national system. Um, so, so today, about 75% of hospitals in the country use that software to manage their clinical care. And what's that software called? That's a, called Ascribe. The, the company went on to also do A&E systems, mental health systems, and full EPR systems in the end. So, so it's the largest system in, in the secondary care market in hospitals. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, is an integrated solution. I sold it five years ago, and that's when I formed Evergreen Life. So you said that you noticed a problem, so then you just went home and wrote some software. How did you know how to do that? Yeah, so I, I hadn't been trained and in, in how to write computer software, but um, in, in the early days of pharmacy, we were one of the first clinical areas to have computers, mainly for stock control. I basically started reading the manuals myself to, to try to use those computers better and, and basically started from first principles in the days when, can you believe, databases didn't exist and I had to write my own. I, I also was very lucky to, to um, uh, bump into a registrar on one of the wards that I, I worked on, who was also in computers, uh, and we, we shared notes in those days. So I had written some programs that I'd given away in the NHS, and I started giving more and more of them away while I was in the NHS, with the only ambition of, Im of, Im of improving that patient care, of reducing the number of errors, inc increasing the chances of getting it right. The only reason really to set up a business was to, to in, the, in effect, be able to help all of my colleagues get that. I couldn't scale it just by working in the NHS and doing it in my evenings. That was the reason I left. But, but yes, I, I did write the computer programs myself in the first place with no training at all. What kind of rang with me is that you said you've given it away. So I meet lots of people that have got lots of ideas and they work within the NHS and they they give it they give their kind of IP away with the view and the principle that they're helping patients. And then you've said, well, I want to scale it up. How it's, it's even though the word scale is a simple word, that is a we talk about scaling in business all of the time. How did you what's your thought process around, okay, well, I'm helping my colleagues in my, you know, the colleagues I can see. And now I want to help more people. I'm going to create a business. Like, help us understand your mindset around that. Okay. So, so as, I, as I left the NHS, I only understood the concept of controlling my expenditure. There's no such a thing as in income in the NHS. So it's not a, a great place to be trained on, on commercial entrepreneurialism. At the same time, I believe that the reason that I um, was able to deliver that for, for my colleagues and for the patients that, that they serve was because I continually focused on what, what the person needed. So, but then learned business well enough to serve them. So just in really simple terms, I had to cost out what a project would cost to do and make sure we made 
sufficient income from the NHS that needed that, that product installing to mean that we made an honest offer that we would be there in five years to continue to maintain it. Because what was very, very clear in my mind is that what the NHS doesn't need is somebody who can install a, a system that they depend on, which is a critical clinical system, and then they're not there in five years. So I had to learn how to run a business, but not because I wanted to make a lot of money for myself or for, for, for you know, investors that were hungry to get a return, but more to make sure we had a stable supply of something which was really important to people. So the business was um, a con it's just a tool to be able to scale your ambitions as a healthcare. Um, and I knew that I, I did try to do it with, within the NHS, but was reminded by, in those days, my, my boss as, as, a, as a general manager that the NHS doesn't write its own software and you, you can't really do it within the NHS. And you, you, you know, the, the better way to do it is to do it externally and commercially. Do you think that sentiment is still true today? I think it's very confused today. It would be great, actually, if the NHS did start doing some of its own things well. But I suppose if you, if you were to look at uh, most recently with, with COVID, simple things like masks and gowns, you know, the NHS don't make their own masks and gowns and they don't make their own beds, but they do sometimes now. They didn't used to, but they did do sometimes now believe they can make their own software. It, it's seen as that. Actually, what they do is outsource the creation for it with an NHS badge on it. But, but so far, I'm not sure we can point to a success. Okay. So, so generally, the successful things that scale and roll out have been produced by commercial companies. Um, why did you sell? Right. Um, so I, I, to be able to grow the business, I needed to take on various investments. So, so uh, venture capital in, a, in, in the early days. Then I floated on the stock market. Uh, and we reached the point where we were doing all that we could in secondary care. So secondary care being hospitals and, and those places you would go to once your GP refers you somewhere. But data wasn't being connected with, with GPs. And so, so um, I, we had the ambition for many years to do this, which is to create a group in EMIS, which was both primary and secondary care in the interest of patients, so that that record could be fully joined up so that imagine you're in the position now that whichever hospital you go to or which from your GP, that, that both the GP gets the information about where you've been and each of those hospitals know the, the details of wherever you've been. Because the simple fact is that the NHS doesn't have a health record for us. They have multiple records in every institution that is a separate organisation, the NHS. They're not joined up. So the so the, re, the, the the reasoning behind pulling selling a scribe to EMIS and making it part of EMIS Group was to to in effect have a single record for patients. So I feel like, and you did this to me when I first met you. That answer is like the official answer. But when I asked you, you you did a tiny little smile when I asked you why did you sell. So what was that smile about? It's. Because unfortunately, what I've just described hasn't actually happened. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to explore why it happened. There's no, there's no, there's no boundaries to this interview. Please, please do it. But it's quite complicated, and I try to keep things, you know, as simple as I can for people who maybe only have a few minutes to listen to things. Okay. Okay. 
So today, you would you actually would you class yourself as an entrepreneur? Uh, a social entrepreneur, yes, yeah. So if, if if the definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who has dreams and makes them come true, then I've done that a few times. So so yes, yes. But but when you know, for me, the first dream was that clinical pharmacists could actually work from a health record. That where they would know the, the drugs that their, their patients were taking before they dispensed the next drug. And that was seen as a dream when I first started. And it now happens in every pharmacy in the country. So, so yes, a social entrepreneur. And why is the social bit so important? Because the innovation that I look for is, to, is, to, is driven to improve healthcare. Um, so, so it's actually, or, or in the case of, of the other companies in, in Evergreen, in sustainability, for example, it's driven to mean that we can solve climate change on, on to, to mean that as a population, more people can live on the, on the earth healthier and happier. It's all about improving society, ensuring that we can have a healthy and happy life and, and we can all carry on living on the earth and not have an earth that can't support us. Okay. How big is Evergreen? So we're just around 100 people in total um, in Evergreen Life. That's around about just over 50. And what's your day-to-day role? So I'm the chair of each of the companies in Evergreen. Uh, in Evergreen. I'm, I'm the chief exec of Evergreen Life. And what does it take to scale an organisation to 100 people? What has had to have happened to enable that? Okay, so so clearly Ascribe was a larger organisation than that. That was more like 400 people. And for the last year I worked in, in it, in EMIS, it was 2,000 people. And so, but what I would say is that the first transition is the hardest, and that's from roughly 20 people going to 30 or 40, because I think we were all designed to be in tribes, and therefore, having one single tribal leader for 20 people works. But, so, but doing it for 40 people ends up exhausting and impossible. The thing you need to do is break down the problem into parts that where you've got departments or divisions in your business that all understand the interrelationships with each other to be able to scale and grow, particularly in, in, the, in the techie world, because a, a lot of businesses with large numbers of people have larger numbers of people doing the same thing. Whereas in technical innovation, generally you're doing things for the first time every, every, every day you go to work, which means that forming that structure is the key to being able to grow and having a management team that, that is capable of managing those technologists against a single vision and plan. And what mistakes have you made to get to that point? How long's the interview? Go <laughs> <laughs> and share some of them because I think what uh, is really important to me about this podcast is obviously I want people I want people to hear the real story, but I also I want people to feel uplifted, but I also want people to see successful people like yourself say, "Yeah, actually, it's really hard," or "I've made this mistake," or "This is the lesson learned." Otherwise, it's a, it's a crap interview if everybody just comes on and says, "I'm amazing. This is what we did." So, so, so in terms of, of, of the things that are, are mistakes, um, I'll, I'll probably pick themes rather than every single one. Okay. 
Um, so the, the, the first one is, is allowing the, the short-termism of your financials to drive your strategy. So in other words, don't let your, ta- um, your, your tactics drive your strategy. So, so on a number of occasions, I've ended up in a position where that's been the case, whether that's been coming to the end of, a, of, of the years that a venture capitalist is, is giving you some, some funding to grow your business, um, they create a short-termism that is their, their, their year for exit, if you like. The other one would be my reaction to trading through the recession. In, in 2008, on the, on the public markets, our, our profits doubled and our share price halved. And that made me react, um, which was to buy the company back off the market privately, which financially, some people would look at it from a distance and say, Oh, you know, Stephen was was great. He he took it off the market at a time when when it was at a low price and and turned that into a higher price later. But I don't think that was good for the continuity of the business. Uh, and I wish I'd I'd, I'd look more at the long term. Uh, and I also wish I understood economics better at that time in the way that I now do, which is that generally recessions do recover. In the business, who is do you have like who's your right hand or who's your right hand? Who's your left hand? Who are the key people? that they're your confidence and your go-tos? Oh, gosh, they're, they're quite, quite a, a large number of great people in Evergreen and, and great investors in Evergreen as well. So, so on a day-to-day basis in Evergreen Life, I've, I've got a, our COO and head of healthcare, Mark Hindle. We've got a James Harmsworth King, who, who is our chief medical officer, both, both of them with decades of experience of, in their areas. So, so if you if you were to take um, James, he, he's he's a cardiologist and card, a cardiac surgeon who, who was a researcher, and now heads up our approach to research in the business, doing our AI analytics and machine learning. Yeah, he, he's obviously it's obvious when I would turn to him. I think um, um, Mark is the kind of person who's done national projects both for Ascribe in the early days and for other health IT companies often at a national scale. Uh, and so, so again, I would turn to him for how, how, to, how, how can we can actually roll some of this stuff, stuff out and take what we're doing to scale as well. But then there's a wider team of, the, of top people. So, so we've got a, a, a CTO who, who is somebody who, again, has had decades of healthcare experience and also worked uh, and for other public bodies providing their large national scale IT infrastructure. Um, and we have a, gr- a group of developers who are po- probably, I should say, I've grown up with over the years because people stay working with me <laughs> dis- dis- despite those arguments you have as techies. And, and uh, we're basically a, a great team, who've, who've all, all of whom have got a lot of experience. Is it a diverse team? Yes, in, in lots of different ways. I, I always... You know, try to measure whether or not we're getting the diversity that other people would see as being appropriate. Every so often we do that with our HR, with our CPO, who, who's another person who's been with me for, for decades. Um, uh, but, but it's very hard to measure in the, te- in, in, in the technical world because do you measure it against whether or not you recruit that, the same percentage from the people who do that job? Because some, some of the technical jobs we do we're, we're fishing in a pool where there isn't diversity in the first place, which makes it really hard. But, but we do end up with, you know, we, we end up with a, a diverse team, yes. So where you said it seemed to be appropriate, 
does it matter what it seemed to be? Surely it just needs to align to the vision and the values of your organisation. Yeah, I do find this subject really hard and I find right. it hard to use the right words. <laughs> um, but because obviously the word appropriate can, can be what's it yeah. aligned to. So, so what I mean by appropriate is, are we giving everybody an equal and fair chance? Uh, and how do you measure equal? Because we, we have, as far as I can see, we give everybody an equal chance. We do do some things which you might call as you know, that we positively discriminate to try to get diversity, which I sometimes wonder about. And being this is what this is, you know, yeah. when, when is it appropriate and when is it inappropriate? I was very proud in the NHS, for example, at the very early days of, of um, actually hiring for a person where in the job advert, I was looking for somebody who was disabled and, you, and you're allowed to do that. And, and it was appropriate because it was um, the, the pharmacy te technician for a, a, a deaf unit in a mental health hospital. And so we positively hired for somebody that was deaf to do that job. There are times when I would say, and it's very hard to say it's right, that that was appropriate to use positive discrimination. Uh, and so, yes, it's a matter of getting that balance where, where, you, where people are getting the job because they know where they were the best, because that's partly, you know, it's pride as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also making sure that when we recruit, you know, we, we are recruiting completely on the basis of merit. So kind of going back to the nuts and bolts of Evergreen, who is your, who's your customer? Yeah, so the customer is the person themselves. It's every, every person on the planet, basically, because what we want to do is, is provide a service to them to enable them to reduce the number of years they have when they're sick. So we particularly focus on the concept of health span. Yeah. That's the number of years you have before you have your first debilitating disease. In the UK, that's around 61, the age of 61. In places like Sweden and Iceland, that's in your 70s. So they have 10 years more healthy, happy life than we do here. Uh, and certainly my belief is that is reflect, well, it's not just a belief now, I think it's being seen as very well, well known, is that one of the reasons that we have suffered badly from COVID in this country is because we have a fairly sick population. We have an obese population with long-term conditions early in life. Now that's just highlighted the problem but we would like to help people throughout the world not suffer the consequences of a Western lifestyle um, and learn what that really means. You know, um, it, it's, it's about um, reducing the chances of having disease, but also once you do get disease, treating it in the most effective way. So in my household, there's myself, my husband, and I've got three children. One has got type 1 diabetes, one has got the kidney condition, nephrotic syndrome, and my eldest has got asthma. So as a family, can we purchase Evergreen? You don't need to purchase it. It's free. Okay. So then, okay, so then I've got it. What do I do with it? Okay. So, so the starting point is you, you already do have a need for a GP services. So, so Evergreen will help you with those. Um, you can book your appointment online on the app. You can order your repeat prescriptions online. And if you want to have them delivered to your door. So we do an electronic link to, to pharmacies who then can deliver. And that's done as an NHS service. Yeah. Uh, and we're an NHS assured app. But beyond that, you could start doing some of the questionnaires on the app. So, so there's a, there's a wellness score in, in the, in the, front and center of the app as you first look yeah. at it. And that's, that's, that is 
a, a score that's built from the questions that you answer um, on a number of, of fairly short questionnaires that we send to you. And then from that, um, we personalised the information that you get. So once you've answered some questions, you'll get more personalised content that'll help you understand how to be as well as you can, be the best version of yourself, basically. But so if it's free to me, somebody has to purchase it. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the NHS pays us for transactions. Okay. So, so today, and we also have customers in the who who in effect pay for it to run their services. Okay. Equally, we're working with universities where they would pay us to aggregate the data for research. Okay. So I will download that after this call. And I'll take a look. I'll let you know what I think. Yeah. But the interesting thing about the business model in Evergreen Life is that we can see it at some point. It won't be that far away. Just at the moment, we're not quite at the point where we're paying for everything. We're still needing investment money. But we can see a time when, when we will be making profits that will be to share, if you like. And our ambition is to share them with back with the people who, who have um, curated the data clearly what they're doing is making the data accurate for themselves so so i'm sure you'd want to make sure that your son got the right inhaler if he's on an inhaler i'm guessing he might be uh, and you'd want to make sure it's it's correct on the prescription for him but as you do that that's also useful for research and when we when we work with universities currently they're paying people manually to collect that data and check that it's accurate but if you have made sure that it's accurate why shouldn't we pay you as a person? So just as the person is a customer, rather than them becoming the product, we want them to benefit from the profits that are made. And so, so we have an ambition to share that and we're setting up a foundation that will monitor, monitor that that is the case. So when you share your vision with people outside of Evergreen, what's their first instinct when you say, well, actually, we should be paying the patient? Depends who they are, but most, I think, um, a, a lot, the setting up Evergreen has come from being in the health IT for decades and seeing organisations having to follow a commercial or organisational model where they have to do things in their own interest. So even if you're in a department in the NHS, as I used to be, and your only issue is whether or not you can spend, whether you're going to overspend your budget, you're still motivated um, to be, uh, if you like, a manager of a department with as many people as you can, because that will improve the grade you're paid for. So, so basically, the organisation has its own needs in every case when we as people use it. And I think if you start, and you have to accept that, that's not an indictment on people. It's not saying um, those, that, that, that people are bad in some way. It's just that the, the, the general system that we work within actually motivates people um, and rewards people for treating people who are sick. So is it a surprise that they want to find more sick people to treat? I'm not sure I can spot the rewards for motivating people to say that we shouldn't be sick and that we, shouldn't, should, we should be well and we don't need to use the services. You know, I certainly wasn't motivated to dispense less prescriptions in the NHS. Yet, is it, is it in people's interest to have as many prescriptions prescribed, dispensed? It depends who you're talking to. If, you, if you're talking to a, a, somebody who makes money out of research data, they clearly want to make sure that the data is owned by them and not by the person. Our founding principle is that 
it's your data, it's not ours. And we are there as a platform to help you get the best from your data. So whether that's at the point of care to make sure that it's structured correctly to help you get the right, right dose of a drug or, or be diagnosed correctly, then we're helping you get your data in the right state for when you need it at the point of care. But clearly, if you have a, a disease, particularly an unusual disease, wouldn't it be great if you could quickly find all the other people with it and work out how, how to treat that disease well? And that's in the interest of you as a person. So, so whereas the organizations, the, the um, you know, pharma, for example, what they're wanting to do is to find a way of selling that patented chemical that they would like to sell, not necessarily motivated to make you not be sick, but not be ill. Interesting. Do you, what's your thoughts on social prescribing? It's, it's something that is a really good initiative in my view. So the thought that, that, that people can improve by being better members of community to start at a really simple level of knowing, knowing where um, the local community events are. The, the correlations to good well-being and therefore avoiding long-term disease and subjective happiness, for example, are massive. It's probably the highest correlated fact about a person who's well is that they are an active member of a community and that they are they, they have friends and people that they can rely on. And so so those are the types of things that get get ignored if you are a if you're a pharmacist dispensing um, a medication. You, you, you don't think, shall I dispense a sewing class? It doesn't come to you to your mind, does it? But why why not? Because they are really effective at helping people be, be, become well and be happy, particularly for mental health. So, so I think it's a really good initiative uh, and we should be doing more of it. Oh, I'm glad you said that. We have got a lady called Jennifer who is the co-founder of a platform called Elemental. I don't know if you've heard of that. She's coming on, on today, well, after you, I think. Um, yes, I know there's some people in Evergreen Green Life talking to Elemental. So, <laughs> Oh, okay, excellent. So and on the theme of happy, so I've got a health coach and her tagline is supporting you to create healthy, happy habits. When we first met, I've got a picture or a graphic that says do more of what makes you happy. Why do you think many of us forget about our happiness and just focus on, you know, like date, kind of get lost in the day to day work and day to day just tasks of living? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a trained psychologist, so, so I, 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 this is purely my, my, own, my <laughs> own view on these things in, yeah. in observing people. I think a lot of the things that we go for are a very short term. So, so for example, you know, that having that bag of crisps or that bar of chocolate, it gives you, no doubt about it, it gives you an immediate piece of pleasure, if you like. And people mistake pleasure and that short term thing for happiness. And they are different things. And so, so actually, when you realize that by, for example, having sugar in your diet as a regular thing will make, make you less happy long term, you've got to understand that and get over it because, of, because actually every single place I go to, I don't know, when you, when you, when you go to a, a supermarket and pay, you can't avoid seeing the bars of chocolate and the bags of crisps, can you? So, so that immediate, immediate pleasure a signal that you get from a, a bag of crisps or a, a bar of chocolate to me is is actually just slightly more compelling than the thought that actually if I avoided 
sugar and and uh, you know processed carbs that I'd be happier for for example yeah. uh, and and the same same kind of thing with exercise you know this slight bit bit more pleasure isn't there it's just lying down on the sofa and watching something that's, that's a, an amusing TV program than it is actually getting up and going for a walk but all, all I would say is that people who do go for a walk are happier so if you get outside and get some exercise for half an hour a day your chances of being happy are massively improved the data from our evergreen users shows that so so but they are slightly more long term aren't they to say i'm going to avoid those that that sugary food and i'm going to make sure i have some fresh air and exercise each day it's very simple things that actually i find but both of which i find pleasurable personally you know, I, I enjoy going out in the open air and having some exercise, and I enjoy when I can, when I just spend a bit more time doing it, having good food rather than, you know, crisps and chocolate or whatever. But it's that slight, it's just that bit more effort, isn't it? And thinking of the the longer term, we're not very good at thinking about the long term for either ourselves or the planet. Yeah, I do, I'm 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 there on the exercise, like one hundred percent. But I, when you were talking, I was thinking oh, that means I'm going to have to give up Lindor chocolate. Yeah, so you, you may you may want to join a group that we're we're just about to do to to try and get this type of feedback. But but the the science with 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 um, sugar and and carbs shows that in effect we are we can get addicted to them, and so the food industry knows this, uh, and there's really good studies to show, for example that if you sold two curries that are exactly the same and then on a taste test you can't tell the difference, but one of them has sugar in and the other one doesn't, that the one with sugar in, people will go back and want that brand. So the food industry knows this. It's addictive. That's why you will find it difficult. But to get over that addiction can take as little as two weeks. So, so actually... It, what I would say to most people is those people thinking of having a diet or those people who are going to go on some kind of month where they are going to be completely different for a month in whatever way, whether it's stopping alcohol, whether it's stopping the chocolate or whatever, think differently and say, what about changing my life forever? It's because when you change your life forever, you'll change your wellness and your, your, your health forever. And so, so the, the easy one to pick on actually is having the, if you've got the willpower to stop added sugar and um, refined carbs for, for somewhere a couple of weeks or a month and just hold that willpower, what you'll find for most people is that the cravings go away. So, but it's, it's just getting over that. I did it 15 years ago and I would never look back. And I'd uh, like to give that gift to everybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's complete, it's very different, but I'm vegetarian. I found that easy to give up meat. I did the same to somebody the other day. It was the easiest thing I've ever done. So I do have, I think it goes back to your, I hate the term, you know, it kind of goes back to why do you want to do it? And I think when you know why you want to do something, it's so much easier versus trying something or doing a diet when you're really not 100% clear on your deep down why. It's not just to fit into a pair of jeans there is a bigger reason which I think is is unique to us that we have to work it work it out it's a, it's a fascinating thing isn't it because of, I don't think there's anybody in the UK who could possibly say they don't know smoking is bad for them you know yet we still have 16 uh, percent of people smoking you know so so clearly um, it's not as simple as if people knew what it would do to them then they wouldn't do it 
and and I have to remember that in I used to do intensive care units, but for over over ten years I went every day um, as a clinical pharmacist, go to the wards where people are treated, and I suppose I have to remember I've seen the other end of this. You know, so if you if you end up with a long term condition where you know, type two diabetes and ending up with um, leg amputations and and all of the the things that are pretty horrendous that can go with that in as a as a the last years of your life, boy would you avoid sugar. You know, possibly one of the reasons that motivated me was that. Although although in terms of my own story, the t- the time I actually changed was more to do with getting more energy and feeling better. I think if people try what I've said, and I'd almost I'd almost like put a wager out that if they don't feel better within a month and find that they don't crave, I'd be really surprised. But the big benefit and the big picture, you know, is actually you're most likely not to have long-term disease. Your chances of getting heart disease drop, your chances of, of um, get, getting t- um, di- diabetes drop, and cancer. The, you know, the route to a lot of our ill health is caused by a diet that we all see and see as normal which has actually been, in fact, invented by the food industry to, to get the, the, the cheaper products sold to us in volume. You know, so. What's that book behind you? Which one's that? Yeah. It, this is called The Clever Guts Diet by Michael Mosley. Are you interested in it? Yeah, I think I could see the words. I think he's written a book on sleep and I've got the sleep book. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because my screensaver for, for, for today, I, on, on my screensaver each day, I, I get it to rotate to different graphs from our users. Uh, and um, that one's on sleep. So I could I could tell you more about clever guts or about sleep. Which you want, the, the stuff about the sleep is from the Evergreen community. Which... To tell us about um, sleep, actually. So I think I've got an interest in it. And that's why I initially went to my health coach. So I feel like, I mean, yeah, that's my biggest problem. I really struggle to sleep and I think well no I know I think my average sleep today today this week is five hours and four minutes and I just really really struggle I know that sleep is good for me I want to sleep but I just yeah like I need I need some help so tell what's your community saying about sleep well so so we have a team of analysts whose job is to find insights that would be useful to the community who use the app so we have some people get who um, I've answered questions to say that they would like some more information about sleep. And this data has been prepared by our analysts as to the the correlations we see in it. So things like, this is all about falling falling asleep within 30 minutes, because a lot of people find that as a, a, a real problem, going to bed and just not being able to get to sleep you're nearly 15% more likely to fall, fall asleep within 30 minutes if you go to bed at a regular bedtime. You're 11% more likely to go to sleep within 30 minutes if you spend 30 minutes outside each day. You're another 8% more likely to go to bed, go to sleep within 30 minutes if you exercise at least 30 minutes a day. But then if you do, if you are the type of person who, when you do drink, you, you um, have more than six units at a session, then you're 10% more likely to not to be able to go to sleep. Okay. If you eat, sh- eat sugary foods, you're another 8% more likely not to, to go to bed, go to sleep. And if you've smoked in the last 30 days, you're 7% more likely 
not to go to sleep in 30 minutes. Now, if you add all those together and say, well, I'm somebody who doesn't have a regular bedtime, I don't spend 30 minutes outside, I eat sugary food, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm not sure we could point, yeah, we can imagine we could point to quite a few people who, who are like yeah. that that we know. That's about 50% in total. Stephen, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really, really appreciate it. If people want to find out more about Evergreen, where can they find you guys? Well, we've got a website, evergreenlife.co.uk is the website. The app is the Evergreen Life, and it's on the uh, both Android and, and the Google, Google Play, the Android App Store. Just type in the words Evergreen Life, look it up, and start, start by uh, entering, answering a few questions, and the, hopefully you'll get some personalised information that's useful to you. Thank you. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram at thc primary care and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.